What's up, everyone? Welcome back to The Planet Today. It is Friday, September 2nd, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host extraordinaire, Nick Janusa. Nick, happy first episode of September. Happy first episode of September, Matt. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. I know you got a big trip coming up this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I am uh, going camping in Rocky Mountain National Park with some friends, so uh, off to Colorado. By the time you're listening, I am already there. So let's hope for some <laughs> nice. nice weather and some great views. Cheers. Uh, before we get into the show, I just wanted to dedicate this episode to uh, my Uncle Gary, who passed away last week. Um, yeah, he was one of the best people I've ever met, the, the kindest, most compassionate person, and... Uh, yeah, we're, we're really going to miss him. He's a fantastic guy who's uh, gone too soon. So, Uncle Gary, I love you. Thank you for always being everyone's number one supporter and just teaching me and, and everyone you came into contact with what it's like to, to care for others. All right, with that, we are going to get right into the show. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. All right, time for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is by Leo Sands, who writes, Pakistan floods. One third of the country is underwater. Minister for the BBC. At least 1,136 people have died in Pakistan since this year's monsoon season kicked off in June as flash floods have washed away roads, homes, and crops. This summer's rain is the heaviest recorded in a decade, and the Pakistani government attributes this to climate change as one-third of the country is currently underwater, like Nick said. Officials say that more than 33 million Pakistanis have been impacted by the historic floods facing the country right now. That is more than one in seven people. Wow. The Swat Valley in northern Pakistan has seen bridges get washed away by the floods, and entire villages have been cut off from supplies as a result. The author writes that thousands of people living in the mountainous area have been ordered to evacuate. But even with the help of helicopters, authorities are still struggling to reach those who are trapped. The impact of this year's flood is predicted to be similar to that of 2010, where over 2,000 people died. Current estimates also look like it will take more than $10 billion to rebuild what is destroyed by this year's flooding. Almost half of the country's cotton has been washed away, and vegetable, fruit, and rice fields have all been significantly damaged, according to Pakistani planning minister Asan Iqbal. Relief helicopter pilots have added that it is hard to find space for them to land, which is making rescue efforts even more difficult. So... We've talked about environmental justice on this show countless times, and in this case, this is a real scenario where the global north, which is your industrialized nations, is really making out a lot better than your, your global south. So Pakistan, according to Greenpeace UK, is responsible for less than 1% of global emissions, but like we said during this segment, 
a third of the country is underwater. They're facing $10 billion in flooding damage. This is why climate campaigners and environmental advocates have been saying for years that the global South is being disproportionately affected by climate change and why every single conversation about how we handle climate change needs to include the fact that the countries that are most impacted by climate change are also the ones that have done the least to cause climate change and more often than not have the least capacity to pay for all of the adaptation that's required to survive this new climate moving forward. Yeah, and not not only that, but also like lacking the technology that we're working on mm-hmm. in order to adapt to the or change to the times. And like, it's so unfortunate that, you know, we put out as a country, the United States, we put out so much emissions and we are very slightly seeing the the repercussions of that. Mm-hmm. And it's these other countries, it's like the Maldives, it's the it's Pakistan yeah. that are facing the hardships of our negative impacts. And it's it's gotta be completely mm-hmm. upsetting to the people of, of of Pakistan that, you know, they're not attributing as much to the climate negatively as as we are or as other countries are, and yet they're paying the ultimate price. Yeah. Yeah, and it's easy for me and you as Americans to focus on America here. And frankly, we are the number one historical emitter of emissions. So it's easy for the world to focus on America. But you have your China, your Russia, your European Union, your UK. Exactly. You know, Australia, like other countries that are doing pretty well that also aren't really footing the bill to help these other countries. So that's why every single time there's a global climate agreement, you have your Maldives, you have your Bangladesh, you have your Pakistan saying, look, this is a big deal. This is impacting us today. This might not impact you until tomorrow or next week or next year, Yeah, but this is our daily struggle and we need your help and it's your fault. Yeah. And for we, the global North to sit back and go, eh, yeah, not really our problem. It's and it's unfair. Yeah, absolutely. And like we notice it when we go to the the grocery store, you know, because, oh, well, or like the our fashion stores, our retail stores. Oh, all the cotton's been washed away. Well, we don't care right now. All the vegetable, fruit and rice fields. We're not going to care until it actually affects us Mm -hmm. when we go to the grocery store. That's that's the way that people think, I feel like. Yeah. And it's it's tough that it is impacting us. Like how hot was July this year? How hot was August this year? This is going to be one of the cooler summers that we're going to remember over the next 20 years. Yeah, this is happening and this has been happening. And, you know, we still have like I think it's down to like 30 percent of the country that's saying climate change isn't real. But that's still one out of every three people almost who just thinks this is some big hoax, which is (sighs) I don't know. Let's let's move on. <laughs> All right, let's move on to some good news, actually. The next one is titled California to Ban Gas-Powered Car Sales by 2035 by PV Magazine's Ryan Kennedy. The California Air Resources Board, or CARB, became the first state last week to ban gas-powered vehicles by 2035. Californians will still be allowed to drive gas-powered vehicles and purchase used ones, but all new car sales will either be fully electric or plug-in hybrid. Now, those plug-in hybrids, that's going to be about 20% of cars that are allowed to be sold, and those run on both batteries and gas. 
California makes up 10% of the U.S. car market and 43% of all plug-in vehicles, including electric vehicles and plug-in hybrids in the country. Part of this plan is for the law to create more demand for solar and EV charging stations. There are about 80,000 charging stations in California today and a goal of having 250,000 by 2025. California's governor, Gavin Newsom, said the climate crisis is solvable if we focus on the big, bold steps necessary to stem the tide of carbon pollution. Yeah, and just to kind of break down those numbers, they're about a third of the way to their goal and they have three years to do it. So if this law does create more demand for those charging stations, then that's good because they're a ways away still. Another article about this from Yahoo News mentions that other states often follow California's lead, so this could be a nice domino effect for decarbonizing our transportation sector. This law also scales up, which is huge. It's not just saying, hey, by 2035, we're fully electric. What this says is 35% of all cars will be electric or plug-in hybrid by 2026. 68% of cars will be plug-in hybrid or fully electric by 2030 and 100% by 2035. Currently, transportation is the single largest source of emissions in California and accounts for about 40% of the state's greenhouse gas emissions. Yeah, I mean, this is great. This is a really good starting point, I would say. I think this is going to become the new normal, obviously, EVs, electrics, or hybrids. It's great that we're having solid goals that we have to reach Mm -hmm. by this year, by this year, by this year. And, you know, hopefully one day we can get to a complete, I think we're going to absolutely make it to a 100% electric fleet. And that will obviously do massive, massive things for our, our greenhouse gas emissions and, and bring hopefully the overall global temperature down. Yeah. And, you know, I have two quick caveats. So the first is that it's not like electric vehicles are these perfect environmental vehicles because, to get those batteries, you need lithium, you need precious metals, and those need to be mined. So there, there's some downsides to EVs, but the upside and the fact that you're not creating emissions through gasoline every single time you power that car, for a car that isn't even really that efficient, if you listen to the episode a couple weeks back with CJ, you know, it, it's a good thing to move from technology to a much better technology, even if that new technology isn't perfect environmentally. It's a lot better. The other caveat here is that the market's kind of trending towards 100% EVs anyway. So most auto manufacturers have announced plans to completely electrify their fleet by around 2035 for some 2040, but most car makers are going this way anyway. So this is definitely good. I don't see it as like as bold of a plan as it might sound at first, but it's a good thing. And what I will say is that this holds those automakers accountable for actually doing what they say they they want to do, because if they don't have 100 percent EVs by 2035, they're going to lose out on 10 percent of the country's market share for vehicles by not being able to sell new cars in California. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I want to touch on the point you just said about like the precious metals and stuff that that comes into play when we're talking about EVs. Mm-hmm. I remember we did an episode about how long it takes before you start to see actual production of those metals in like a copper mine takes like four to 12 years to actually get the copper out. So that's definitely a big player here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hopefully we can build those new mines and do it sustainably. Yeah, sustainably and ethically. That's always going to be the key here. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. Our next story is from The Hill, where Brad Dress writes, Interior grants $560 million across 24 states to plug more than 10,000 orphaned wells. So some more good news here. These grants will reclaim abandoned oil and gas wells, which leak methane, an extremely potent greenhouse gas that contributes to this ongoing climate crisis. Methane is 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide at trapping heat in the atmosphere and significantly accelerates climate change once it's released. The funding will come from President Biden's infrastructure package that passed last year and included $4.7 billion to address orphaned wells. Last week's funding is part of a phase one investment of about $1.15 billion that plugs up these wells. Interior Secretary Deb Holland said that the infrastructure law enables us to confront long-standing environmental injustices by making a historic investment to plug orphaned wells throughout the U.S. Interior officials say there are more than 129,000 abandoned oil and gas wells across the country. So the effort to plug them up in 24 states is just one step in the Biden administration's larger goal of halting those methane leaks on the continental U.S. Some states have more orphaned wells than others, like Kentucky with 1,200, Kansas with 2,300, and Oklahoma with 1,196. And 12 of those states will prioritize plugging up wells in disadvantaged communities. So that's definitely another huge step in the environmental justice field. This latest measure adds on to the $33 million package announced in May to plug up 277 wells on national lands. Look, every time we drill for oil, methane is going to leak. And methane is, like we said, a really, really potent gas. It doesn't last as long in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So that's, I guess, a slight trade-off. But while it's up there, it's doing way, way, way more damage. Yeah. So anytime we have an opportunity to plug up these wells and stop methane from leaking for something that isn't even going into production like I'm, I'm not happy about the way that we have this really fossil fuel reliant grid I, I wish it had more renewables in it 20 years ago but at least you can justify people using gas to power their stoves to cook dinner for their family like when we're talking about just leaks that aren't productive yeah that's so so infuriating to me so you know, this is this is a really important step and this is a really big step that the Biden administration is taking here. Yeah, absolutely. And when I first read the art, the headline of the article, I was like, wow, 560 million seems like a lot of money to put towards just like plugging up these holes or plugging up the wells. I don't know, I guess, the exact way that they have to do it, but it does seem like a crazy amount to, to spend on on just mm-hmm. plugging up uh, wells. Yeah, and my only qualm about the price is that I wish fossil fuel companies were the ones that were paying to do this since they're paying for they're paying like to drill and then making a lot of money off what's coming out of that. So I don't know, like if I was if I was like doing my job and losing my company 10% of the output into the atmosphere, you would think that my boss would be like, "Hey, fix this get on that <laughs> yeah yeah stop stop this problem that you are creating but that is not what's going on here um look a win's a win i'm not going to complain too much about the fact that these are getting plugged up i just do wish that the enemy the fossil big fossil fuel was the one that was paying for it <laughs> yeah 
All right, we are going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we got two more quick hits for you to send you on your merry ways. Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. And next up, Greenland ice loss will raise sea levels by nearly one foot by 2100. Study shows by CNBC's Emma Newberger. This is not great. So an ice sheet in Greenland is set to melt and raise global sea levels by around 10 inches by 2100. A study published in Nature Climate Change found that 3.3% of Greenland's ice sheet will melt, which is about... 110 trillion metric tons of ice melting. Even if the world were to immediately stop emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, you know, snap of a finger while you're listening, all of a sudden we are not emitting any greenhouse gases, this melting would still occur. And it's important to remember how long methane, CO2, and other gases stay in the atmosphere, which is why immediately stopping emissions isn't just going to immediately reverse climate change. This forecast is more than twice as much sea level rise as researchers had previously predicted stemming from Greenland's ice sheet melting. It is the second biggest ice sheet in the world behind the one in the Antarctic and covers 80% of the island. If the entire ice sheet were to melt, it could cause global sea levels to rise by as much as 23 feet. Yeah, look, I'm not an expert in floodplains. <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend to be a disaster scientist here, but... 23 feet will definitely impact a lot of coastal cities around the world, which is why it is so, so crucial to fight climate change. And look, even one foot of sea level rise is going to threaten around 200 million people by the end of this century. 40% of people in the United States live in coastal areas and $7.9 trillion of our GDP come from coastal areas, according to NOAA. So, Look, this is a huge deal, and it might not sound like a ton. We're like, oh, you know, yeah. what's ten inches? I, I live <laughs> hundreds of feet up in the air. No, like that's that's not how this works. When you think of all of the people, all of the infrastructure, all of the economic impact that comes out of these coastal areas, ten inches is a really big deal. Yeah. Not only that, think about all of like a lot of the major cities. Mm-hmm. On, in the in the United States, a lot of them are like on water or really close to water. In the world, dude. In the world too. In the world, yeah. Like 
we set up our, our cities to be near ports so that we could trade, whatever, all this stuff. Yep. New York City is underwater at 23 feet. Like, absolutely underwater at that point. Yeah. Like, there's just, there, you can't have a functioning society. So, like, we're laughing about it, we're joking, but, like, obviously this is a very serious situation, and it's one that's a scary, scary thought. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, the thing about sea level rise is that it's tough to visualize what this would all look like. You know, we, we talked about how there's 110 trillion metric tons of sea ice that could melt. I don't know what that means, but I could tell you that 23 feet higher oceans, that's a hell of a scary thing to think about. Yeah. You know, that's going to have salt water working its way into our freshwater sources, which is going to impact our crops, which is going to impact our vegetation, which is going to impact our animals because all of a sudden the vegetation that they eat was killed because of too much salt in the water. So this has just this snowball effect yeah. that I really don't want us to have to deal with. So look, a foot of sea level rise is an issue. That's something we can find a way around. We can't find a way around 23 feet. So no. that's why it's so important to just get off fossil fuels and fix this fossil fuel economy and get into something that's not basically slowly killing us every single day while we're operating just day-to-day -day stuff. Exactly my thought. And like I'm just thinking about the, the generations after us that are going to have to face this. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. Almost makes you think like, I'm glad I'm not going to be here. Like, yeah, ter which is a terrible thought. Yeah, I mean, chances are, unless you and I live to 105, we're not going to see 2100. But there's like, our, our, if if you and I go on to have kids, they're probably gonna see that, yeah. which sucks. Sucks. Yep. All right. So to wrap this one up and close it out, going back to Greenland, climate change from the burning of fossil fuels has led to longer summers in Greenland and accelerated the retreat of glaciers and the island country's ice cap, according to this article. Our last quick hit of the week is by Michelle Lewis of Electrek, who writes, Renewables provided over 25% of total U.S. electrical generation in first half of 2022. You thought after that last article, we weren't going to send you off with a happy story, but that's what we do Wrong. here, folks. It's Friday. Let's have a good Friday. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so some good news to end it out. This data comes from the U.S. Energy Information Administration, or the EIA, and their monthly report showed that through June 30th of this year, renewables increased their electrical output by 18.45% compared to the first half of 2021. Renewables include biomass, geothermal, hydropower, wind, and solar. The EIA projected that renewables will provide 22% of U.S. electrical output in 2022. But at the halfway point, renewables have actually provided 25.23% of total U.S. electrical generation, which is awesome. Yeah, it's great news, and this should increase even more thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Renewables outproduced coal by 28.76% and nuclear by 38.81% thanks to some serious increases in generation from several different renewable sources. Electrical generation by wind increased by 24.67% and solar sources increased by 27.72%. They created 11.55% and 
5% of total U.S. electrical output, respectively. Wind and solar alone generated almost as much as all of the nuclear plants in the United States. So this is a great time to be a renewable energy fan, which if you're listening to this show, I hope you are one of those fans. Some bad news here is that wind development dropped compared to last year, which means we're going to have less new capacity next year than we had this previous year. This doesn't mean we'll have less wind energy. It just means that the rate of increase will be a little bit lower. And this was a result of two things mainly. The first is that the wind industry was waiting to see if Congress would reinstate tax credits for new onshore wind farms. And the second is that wind equipment manufacturers were impacted by global supply chain issues. So frankly, those issues will get sorted out and we will start producing more wind. Um, It's just right now that rate of increase dropped a little. Yeah, like you just said, this is predicted to be reversed according to S&P Global Market Intelligence, thanks to the IRA. The S&P report says that the U.S. has a wind development pipeline with 73.4 gigawatts on the way by 2026. 31% of that is in advanced development or already under construction. So really just great news overall. Yeah. All right. You want to talk about the the funny like history thing first or the important wind energy stuff first? Uh, Give me the important wind energy stuff first. Yeah, this is this is excellent news. And, you know, to see that we have 31 percent of a 73 gigawatt pipeline that's already in advanced development, like we are going to have more wind energy in the next three, four, five years than we really could imagine. You know, the the IRA is going to make things progress a lot more quickly due to all of the funding that's going to go towards this clean energy economy. Yeah, that goes for solar, too. That goes for hydropower too like there are provisions in there to make all energy more efficient and have more of it yeah and i think it's always hard for our listeners and me specifically too you hear 73.4 gigawatts you're like okay sounds like a lot of energy i don't know what that means Mm -hmm. well one gigawatt is enough to power 750,000 homes (laughs) so there's your there's your reference point right there and we're getting 74 of them almost and that's just in wind that's not including solar like This is a good time to be a fan of clean energy. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, the funny like history thing to close out. Every time I read IRA as an abbreviation, I think Irish uh, Republican Army. (laughs) So I'm just picturing like the Irish the Irish people that like they're the ones powering all of this renewable energy. So I don't know. It's something I got to get used to reading more, or I just need to start reading. Inflation Reduction Act instead of IRA. I read it and I always think of um, like Roth IRA because I have like a finance degree, like a boring (laughs) finance degree. Well, you just got a little peek into our psyche. I was a history minor in college and and Nick did finance. (laughs) There you go. Now you guys know a little bit more about us, but now you got to send in some like letters and be like, this is something about me. Talk about yourself. Tell us about you. We could do we could do listener of the week next week for TPT one hundred. Oh, I like that listener of the week. I listened to this many hours of TPT episodes. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're listening now and you want a shout out, just tell us next week why you deserve a shout out, and we'll do it on TPT one hundred. <laughs> there you go. All right, that will do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we're going to be back for our Monday mini-sode to kick off the first Monday episode of every month. Get ready to share that one with your friends so that they can check out the show because a week later, we have the first of two huge interviews this month. 
yeah, so we'll talk more about that on next Friday's show. But until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Chanusa produces our show and makes all of the music you hear throughout it. Nick, where can people hear more from you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash budlincape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here this Monday. Peace!